Amen. Well, if you'll turn your uh, Bibles back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll stay close there. We'll might page over a couple pages. Um, but we'll work through this. And the plan is to look at qualifications for elders, pastors, deacons. Uh, know what God expects uh, of this office and from us in general. And uh, then uh, after the qualifications, next week we'll be looking at the duties, the role of an elder. What is the role of an elder? What is the role of a deacon will be the following uh, week after that. So we'll come back to this passage if you feel like, hey, maybe uh, there was something that could have been brought out of that. We'll, probably, we'll be going back. But as you turn to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, I'm going to read from 2 Peter 3.10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away, and a roar in the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, Peter asks, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for the hastening and coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So each of us labors, we're each doing this for an earthly estate of some kind. We're trying to pay off our homes. We're trying to manage our finances, we're working. Everyone is building something, whether you're wealthy or not wealthy. That's all eventually going to get melted down. All right? Melted down, and there's going to be a new heavens, a new earth. What is more important, Peter is saying, is that every Christian is to be diligent in building character, because that's profitable for all things. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but examine everything carefully, he tells us. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. How about that? And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our men who have been gathering for Wednesday evening men's discipleship have been studying sanctification recently. And, and how to nurture, nurture sanctified lives. And, and our responsibility not only to ourselves, but to our families. That of our wives. Scripture has taught us that uh, Christ gave himself up for his church. As so such, we're supposed to give ourselves up for our wives to sanctify her. So that at the return of Christ, our wives are also ready. So there's this broad... Uh, Responsibility of men to be prepared and to have our families prepared. And the reason that, that I make such a point of this as we look at these ethical standards for church leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that these requirements, as I said, they're for all of us. They're for all of us. Every single Christian, male or female, is commanded to pursue righteousness. If God commanded it, it can be done. I know it seems hard, but it can be done, or God wouldn't have commanded it. But the question's often asked when, when looking at these qualifications, where do we find these guys? 
Where are these men? Who could possibly meet all these criteria that we're looking at that are required for elder leadership serving as deacon? The obvious answer is, before salvation, nobody. None is righteous. Not even one. Nobody is qualified before coming to Christ and understanding he's a sinner, lost and needing to be saved. Nobody's righteous. Every one of us here, uh, at some point in our life, especially before conversion, but definitely before conversion, we've struggled with something on this list. Every single one of us. Most, I would say, to, I dare say, perhaps all of us, still, in some way, struggle with some of these things. And, and after becoming a Christian, there was probably a season in each of our lives, I know there was in mine, where we would struggle with some of these criteria. And, and there's a season of, of becoming uh, sanctified, becoming holy and set apart to God. It doesn't happen day one. You are changed. Your eternal destiny is sealed by the Holy Spirit when you come to faith. We lag behind a little bit in behavior because we haven't learned the Word yet, right? We have not yet learned the Word. So for periods after becoming a Christian, it's not... Uh, odd at all to see a newly professed Christian to struggle with alcohol for a season, to um, have problems with his business strategies. He was relying on greed and manipulation before, and now he's now got to change his business model. That's tough. It, it takes learning. There takes faith with that. So everybody has a season. You don't immediately day one become a great manager of your household, great Christian manager of your household. We all learn from Scripture over time how to become a good father, a good mother, how to not be double-tongued. Give one story to one person, opposite story to another to cover us, right? Did you have a great reputation both inside and outside the church on day one? Probably not with these criteria. If so, if someone says that, you know, like the rich young ruler, oh, no, no, I've kept all of these even since my youth. Not only are you delusional, you've just violated verse 6 that says not be conceited, right? That's conceited. It's unreasonable. None of these requirements on this list must have been kept entirely from our youth. That would have been impossible in the unregenerate state. Sinless perfection from our youth, you'd have to be Jesus. He was the only one who was perfect from his youth. And no, what Paul has already taught in this letter, from chapter 1, where we'll turn in a moment, is that God redeems really rotten sinners. Really rotten ones. And by God's Holy Spirit, over time, God tailors them, He fashions us, He purifies us, He molds us into a role of proper Christian service. Regardless, again, of what our history was before becoming a Christian. How do we know this? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, Paul uses himself in his example, as an example for all of us, how God uses people who have a really checkered past. Turn back to chapter 1, a couple pages, verse 12. For review, we'll look here at Paul talking about himself. In verse 12 he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, what? Putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Paul says, yet I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorantly in unbelief. 
These were things that Paul did during a season. He was unregenerate. He was unsaved. He was not a Christian. He was Saul the Pharisee, remember? It was during that season he did these things. And he continues saying, The grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. How abundant is, how abundant is grace? More than abundant. Paul, uh, then Saul, he was a blasphemer. He stood against the church. He preached against the church. Uh, he persecuted the church. He's self-described violent aggressor. He even presided, we know, over the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The first martyr of the church. He presided over it. He was as bad as you get before becoming a Christian. And he adds this summary phrase in verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, Paul says, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. Foremost of all. And then Paul uh, solidifies, he drives home his point in verse 16. Look with me, please. Yet for this reason, for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe on him for eternal life. Paul's calling into Christian service was provided to us by Jesus Christ as an example. It wasn't an oddity. It wasn't a unique situation with Paul. It was an example for everyone who had come to faith. Everybody. Paul's calling into Christian service as described in verse 12 was to what? The office of apostle. The highest office in the church. He was called to an apostle regardless of his background. By Paul's own admission, he was a murderer. Read for you from Acts 26.10. Paul says, Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I was, as, as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged against them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities, Paul says. That's how bad he was. And Paul's given to us by the grace of God and by our Lord Jesus Christ as an example of a genuine calling into Christian service. That's how overflowing and abundant the grace of God is. Sometimes our grace concerning people's past isn't quite so abundant. But the standard provided for elder or deacon, uh, these standards, uh, they do not need to be demonstrated over the person's entire life. They need to be demonstrated for a sufficient period of time after conversion that the candidate might be observed as, or known as, above reproach. Above reproach. This means the individual is above any reasonable accusation. Uh, he's above charge, we would say. Um, how long of a period must this person be considered above reproach? It doesn't say. 
It doesn't say. Why? Because everybody's set of baggage is different. Everybody's baggage is different. It, it, it's, it's an amalgamation. It's a, it's a mixture. It's a pot of stuff. Every one of our backgrounds. Everything's different. So that there's no set time period for us to discern whether a person's above reproach or not. It, it's long enough where nothing substantive can be accused against the individual. The way that my previous church for, for elder, that, that we would do this, was prospective elders would be brought and announced to the congregation. They would be stood up physically in front of the entire congregation. At that time, you know, over 4,000 people at that church I was a member of. And um, it would be announced that these are our candidates for elder, in front of everybody. And with our go- ongoing observation, we would say, and our assessment from what we know uh, as a church, talking about the leadership that was appointing them, announcing them, they're saying, from what we have observed, and Pastor Tom would announce this, we find them above reproach. And it'd be for everyone to see, and Pastor Tom would say very clearly, if you know anything about any of these individuals or this individual that we need to know about, if there's anything out there we need to know about beforehand, come and talk to us. Come and talk to us. And, and we can discuss privately as to the merit, the, the issues. What he's saying is, after we affirm these fellas into being elder, don't come then and toss a grenade in. Don't do that. Don't come to a meeting later on, after you had the opportunity to say something, and at the last minute, at the last hour, heave a big grenade in there. That, that's not the appropriate way to handle those things. So, that public introduction... That's normally enough to scare the bejeepers out of anybody who might have something in their past. Really. Everyone there is going to see you, people you know, visitors to the church who might know you, who you don't know, who've seen you. And if there's an issue in the background, you know, an alcohol issue, problems at their place of employment, those types of things, etc., usually they won't aspire to church leadership. They just won't aspire to it. In fact, you might go to them and they might be serving very well. As far as we can all observe, and they're there regularly at church, and they're in worship, and um, they have something going on in their background, and they're struggling through this. They might, might not have had victory over every sin yet. But if there's something that might come out, you, you're, you ask them, it's like, why don't you aspire to you know, elder or something? Wouldn't you be a good elder? No. No, they won't do it. Generally, that will really thin the field by an announcement in front of people. Um, because they know if something is uncovered that has merit, they're going to have their nomination revoked. And, and that's going to be really embarrassing after you've already been announced to the congregation. So this, this is one way that uh, it can really thin the field. How long must they have been above reproach? Completely subjective to each individual cir- set of circumstances. Completely subjective by the board that's looking at them nominating them. They have to say, what do you have in your past? Is there anything we should know about? Very subjective. No set rule. Everybody has a different set of baggage. The first thing then we observe in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the candidate must aspire to the office. In verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So anyone that's being called by God to be an overseer, he's both going to aspire and desire. He's going to both. Uh, 
There's no need for manipulating people, guilting them, pressuring them into the office. You might need to encourage them uh, as to their potential. But you don't have to tell them, oh, we've got to have you, or the church will fail. No, it won't. Christ's church won't fail. There needs to be an an aspiring. um, The call by the, the elder, it's a calling by God. It's a calling by God. Some elders, they, they do it as a full-time occupation, pastoring. Some elders are, are bivocational. They, they get their living elsewhere, and they're, they're at work only six days a week instead of seven. We've got some great servants here, great bivocational guys. They're always working. They're always busy. Um, and, and they have steep responsibilities. They really do. Uh, time, dedication, sacrifice. Those who... Uh, Aspire to elder, know that there are uh, going to be some challenges. In fact, the requirements are so high, most people wouldn't want it. I think back to uh, the call process before I came. And uh, Nathan was a chairman of the deacon board, which really more functions in our church. It's an elder board. It's men making governing decisions. We'll talk about that more coming forward, the way it functions. And, and it was during the call, he didn't know I was going to talk about this, so he's nervous now. He spent a lot of time. As part of the call committee and, as, and on the board itself, for nine months there, he invested a lot of time. Nobody knew how much time. I had an idea how much time. The call committee had an idea how much time. Pastor Weiler knew how much time. Huge sacrifice. Huge sacrifice. And, and so you have to be prepared. And coming into an elder, it's, you know, it's just not like an hour and a half meeting every other month. It's not. It's a huge sacrifice, especially for those that are bivocational. Um, and we'll talk more specifically about the duties involved with that next week. Uh, this week, we only need to consider qualifications. And in verse 2, the apostle provides then a universal qualification. Uh, and it's followed by a number of accessible standards of qualification. The universal qualification is this. An overseer then, it says, must be above reproach. The universal qualification is found, it, it's found twice, actually, in the letter to Titus, another pastoral epistle. In verses 6 and in verse 7 of Titus chapter 1, it says, the overseer must be above reproach. So that's three times. That's the universal qualification. Even if you look at verse 10 here, uh, for deacon must be above reproach. So this is, this is the, the big flagship here, the flashing lights, above reproach. And then after that, in 1 Timothy and Titus, we're given a sundry list a variety list of different qualifications that would help us assess whether that person's above reproach. Uh, They're obviously intended to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'll get to that in a moment. I'll explain that. In verse 2, he must be, what's it say? It says, a husband, no, no, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. That's what it says. That's the literal Greek rendering. He, an elder must be, or deacon, must be a one-woman man. The reason that, that virtually every English translation out there says a husband of one wife, there's a reason for that. Um, it is universally established in Scripture that any man sexually involved with a woman must be married to her. A one-woman man has to be married to that woman to be considered uh, for leadership. So this is an interpretation. 
of what the Greek says. There's no exception to this principles. There's no one woman man apart from the husband of one wife. So they make it very clear for us. Um, if it were printed in our Bibles as Paul actually wrote it, one woman man, surely there would be a situation where a man is in a live-in situation with a girlfriend, and he'd say, well, you know, technically, I know I'm a one-woman man. No. Technically, you're sexually immoral, the Bible would say. You're not a one-woman man. You're not a husband of one wife. So Bible interpreters, they, they do the correct, correct thing by translating this to the, he must be a husband of one wife. And although this would prohibit, it does prohibit a polygamous sheik, like over in Arabia, from being appointed to elder or deacon, it does prohibit that. It was not written by Paul to combat polygamy. It wasn't. Polygamy, that was broadly shunned in the Roman Empire and the Greek-speaking world. Broadly shunned. It was not an acceptable thing. Um, not common. What was common then, and is still common today, many countries, is the three-woman man. Very common. That's what the Apostle Paul is confronting here. Though Roman men did profess legally, I have one legal wife, I have one wife, that was very common. It was very common, excuse me. Especially the, among the affluent that were there, was into addition to his wife, he also had a slave girl that he would have living in his house which he would have interactions with, and very common among the affluent that he would also have a mistress downtown or some other location. Very, very well known that this was commonplace and very commonplace today in many cultures. Many cultures. The affluent Roman man, the affluent man uh, especially, they were three women men. Three women men. But such still could have argued they were technically the husband of one wife. Paul says, no. I'm going to put this down. You are going to be a one-woman man. One-woman man. That way the three-woman man didn't say, well, I've only got one wife, and then creep into leadership. No, you're not known as a one-woman man. You're known as a three-woman man. So the elder or deacon must be recognized in the community as a one-woman man. The text does not say he could have never been divorced. Doesn't say that. Nowhere in the passage at all does it say never divorced. Divorce, it doesn't even creep into the passage. Um, what this text demands is that for a sufficient period of time, the man is regarded as being faithfully devoted to his woman. That's what it demands. And is sexually above accusation, above reproach. For how long? Long enough so that there's no question in regarding his faithfulness to his wife. Just no question to it. Could be any length of time. Gerald, I've been married about six years. He's a one-woman man. We all know that. Um, Nathan, about 18, 19 years. One woman. <laughs> a one-woman man in trouble. <laughs> if you had someone that was getting, uh, someone serving in your church for several years, a single person, he gets married, been serving faithful, above reproach for all his time, gets married a week later, a day later, he's a one-woman man. For everything that we know about him, he's above reproach, he's devoted to his one wife. 
We have um, Jerry Robertson. Just celebrated his 50th anniversary a week ago. Amen? 50th anniversary. Before he was a believer, years before he was a believer, at about 20 years old, he made a mistake and was divorced. For 50 years he has been faithful to Carolyn, and it's been since he was a Christian. He is a one-woman man. No doubt about it. He is redeemed. If Paul can be a murderer before coming to Christ and ascend office of apostle, you could have someone 50 years ago. How is it for each person? Each person's different. Each person is different. There's no set standard. Also, this passage doesn't mean that an elder has to be married. Um, taking this too woodenly literal it makes it really hard to comprehend the passage. Makes it very hard. Paul wasn't married. Paul the Apostle wasn't married. Barnabas wasn't married. Mark, Titus, Timothy, and others give no indication of being married. They give indication of not being married. And and, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul establishes himself again as an example for us. To those who are called uh, by God, he's an example of refraining from marriage. What's the purpose? Specifically for undistracted devotion to the Lord's service. That's the reason he gives. Some people will be called to, to remain unmarried so that they can serve the Lord undistracted. You don't have to be married. Same is true with, then with the statement about children of elders or deacons. We see that in verses 4, 5, and 12. You don't have to have children. That's why these criteria following above reproach, they depend some to a certain amount on life circumstances when it comes to marriage and uh, children. They're descriptive, not legalistically prescriptive. You know what I'm saying? Because if you must have children, then you'd have to, if you want to take that woodenly literal, you have to say, well, you're not good with one child either. You have to have plural. No, that's not what we're being taught. That's not the heart of the passage. Um, the prohibition found in verses 3 and 8 of not addicted to much wine. Literally, uh, it means you must not be one who sits at his wine too long. Or the most literal interpretation would be one who lingers at the cup. One who lingers at the cup. This doesn't mean that elders have to sit at the cup, just not linger at it. Obviously. It means Christians, not just leaders, Christians are not to have a reputation of lingering at the cup. They don't linger at the cup. And then we go to the topic of family in verse 4. It says, The good manager of his household, whatever household you have again, must be managed well. Your wife, your kids, if you have them, they must be in control. They must be in control. They must look to your leadership, your wife and children. Um, how would the church follow your leadership if your own household won't follow your leadership? You see the problem there? There's, there's a contrast there. In addition, it says that the children must be obedient. Phoebe and Annie, all of the time. All the time. Perfectly obedient. Don, you can thank me later. And you'll likely notice that the qualification for elder and deacon, that they're very similar. They're very similar. The, the elders are a little more broadly encompassing what it involves. There is one qualification for elder that doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture for deacon. Uh, the position of deacon uh, does not have to have the ability to teach. That's found in verse 2. 
An elder must be recognized as one who can publicly handle the word. And Titus chapter 1 tells us, it it adds that elders must demonstrate they can both exhort in sound uh, doctrine and refute those who contradict it. You have to be able to do both. So elders have to know their Bibles. Next week we're going to learn that this is because the overseer's role is overseeing. Wow. It's the responsibility of shepherding, governing, teaching, overseeing. Well, the deacon's responsibility and, and his giftedness is to a position of service. The, the word deacon actually, diakonos, it means servant. It means servant. It's a service position. An elder who governs, we'll see next week that, that it says that the elder who rules well is, is to be worthy, worthy of double honor. Uh, the elder must be recognized as knowing doctrine well enough so that he has the ability to teach. He has to have that ability. Uh, it's simply a credibility issue. Simply a credibility issue. Christians don't generally want to be under uh, the shepherding, under the leadership of men, if the men can't adequately demonstrate that, that they know what God's Word says. It's a credibility issue. It doesn't mean that every elder has to teach from the pulpit. It doesn't mean that every elder has to preach every week. Any, uh, it doesn't mean they have to teach a class every single week. He has to be able to demonstrate in front of the flock that he can exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's the requirement. Verse 2. We see that an elder must be temperate, must be prudent, must be respectable. Generally, uh, these terms indicate he's, he's sufficiently on his toes. He's on his toes. Synonyms to these words are, are alert, watchful, vigilant, must be clear-headed, sober-minded, disciplined, and orderly. Has to have his act together. He's sharp. He also must be, we're told there, hospitable. Then a hospitable doesn't mean that you have to entertain large parties at your house every week. You have to have a whole bunch of people on the whole buffet lined out every single week. No. Hospitable, this word, is a, it's a Greek compound word. It means loving of strangers. You must be loving of strangers. You're hospitable. In the ancient world... They didn't have hundreds of rooms available at the Holiday Inn that you'd swipe your visa card and have a place to stay immediately. No, it was necessary when you traveled that you were able to rely upon the hospitality of strangers. They would put you up for a night in their home. They would give you a meal. If you needed washing, they would help you clean up. So, hospitable means you love strangers. Now... Hosting strangers into our homes nowadays. Not real common, is it? Not something we really like the idea of. Especially you just met them on the road. Very common back then. You had to be hospitable. The church was known as being hospitable. A few of us hosted the PCC, Pensacola Ensemble, in our homes a couple months back. Not the same thing. We knew who they were, we knew where they were coming from, and we knew who to call. They were great. Wonderful to have them there, uh, have them in our homes. Uh, the, the, the college students were, ju- were just really a joy. We really enjoyed that. Um, but Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by, some, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Again, this is to all of us. Not just elders and deacons. 
Christians need to be willing to be put out by complete strangers who are in a pinch. Helping someone in a broken down car along the road. Being hospitable, someone has a need, you give them 20 or 50 bucks to get them on down the road, you get them a meal, you get gas in there. Pretty much each of us here, I would anticipate, at some time have come into a situation to where we've helped out strangers. We've been hospitable. We've helped get them on their way. Hopefully we've shared the gospel with them. Give them a ticket to heaven. They love it. Especially when you give them 50 bucks. Will you also read this? Yeah, I'll read that. Great outreach. Carry 50s around in your pocket and hand them out with gospel tracts. That is what I suggest. Verse 3, gentle, peaceable, and not pugnacious. Pugnacious means that he's not a brawler. Uh, literally not a striker. Doesn't rely on physical blows. And that's not good in, in uh, church meetings. Christians don't settle their disputes by duking it out. We don't, thankfully. We, we don't model violent behavior. We don't tolerate it with our kids. If they get violent, we get violent. No, I didn't mean that. We straighten them up. A couple of kids in a schoolyard duking it out. We grab them. Wait till I get you home. We, we live in a culture that really glorifies violence. We're not that type of people. Um, in verse 3, it says that we're free from the love of money. In verse 8, we're not forward, fond of sordid gain. We're not greedy cheats. We're not. Elders... We don't, honestly, we strive, strive very hard for this. We don't view people with dollar signs. We don't. People ask, do you know what people give? I don't know what people give. I may see a contribution now and then. It may happen where you go into a situation where you, you will know what someone gives or a special gift of some kind. I don't know what you all give. Don't want to know. Don't want to minister to you because there's a dollar figure attached. Um, we'll talk more about money. Chapter 5, chapter 6 goes into that. We don't need to go there now. But when, when it comes to church leaders, we also find that they must not be new converts. That's in verse 6. For the deacon says, must be first tested in verse 10. Rising quickly, we all know this, it elevates pride, doesn't it? Um, even for the most humble people, they struggle with this. We humans, we love acquiring position and rank. We love that. Um, Satan was high in rank. He was. He was the morning star. He was uh, the star of the dawn, is what he was called. And that, that's a title that'll swell your head. It will. And, and one way that God counters pride is, is by us experiencing disappointments. Um, this is really important. I don't, don't believe we'll touch on this again. Uh, in this, in First Timothy, in the same way, before ascending or aspiring to church leadership, we really need enough disappointments in ministry to take the glitter off success. Take the glitter off it. In fact, it's my opinion. So you can take it or leave it. A prospective elder, he needs enough experience of kind of wading into different ministries, serving in different types of ministries, uh, seeing the inner workings of ministry, to discover it isn't glorious. It's not glorious. Um, in fact, I would say it would not be unhealthy for any prospective elder or pastor through experience in ministry to, to arrive at the conclusion, I, I don't want it. I don't want it. It's not even desirous. Uh, I don't want to give the wrong impression here. 
Uh, hang with me. Nobody in their right mind would become a pastor in an occupational sense. Let's just put it that way. No. Um, when you see things you don't really want to see, when you know things you really don't want to know, it makes, it makes ministry a challenge that, that a lot of people don't come to. So you need to know if you're going into any sort of church leadership, you need to wade into ministry. And you start to see this stuff and you can discern whether or not that's for you. It's not the same as punching in and out of the clock and going home and not worrying about a situation. You know, I did that. Delta Airlines for years. It was wonderful. Praise the Lord. Great job as a mechanic. You punch in in the morning. You do your job. At the end of the day, you punched out. You didn't have to worry about it again until the next morning. You had second shift picking up. Very good. It doesn't work that way with pastoring. So a man ought to have enough experience in ministry to know that there's no glory in it. Really need to conclude, actually, you don't want to be an elder or pastor. Come to that conclusion. Then there will be a divine calling. And you'll be driven to it so much you can't resist it. You'll be driven. And, and, and there's a point of calling into occupational ministry. There's this point that a pastor is convinced that the world is so genuinely lost. It's so totally depraved. It is so sick. The world is so hopeless that, that as a pastor or perspective... You come to the point where you think there's only one thing for this world that will save it. That means both individually and as a nation socially, there's only one thing that can save us. It's the gospel. You've got to come to that conclusion. And and, and when you get to that mindset, you completely abandon confidence in anything else. Nothing else is going to save the day. You embrace the mindset that you're not going to revert to hope through things like uh, a new currency or through politics or, or through some kind of social program. You, you just abandon all that stuff. Not that it's bad, but you're like, that's not going to save us. And, and you have to come to the conclusion there's no plan B. Because when the criticism comes, when the antagonism comes, when it arises... If, if a pastor could revert to trusting in plan B, either family money or some career skill that he has, it'd be pretty tempting. You'd do it. Like, you know what? Better things going on. So you have to be convinced this is it. And, and it's a calling. Um, it's a calling that can't be resisted. It really is. And, and you have to be completely convinced of what you are doing and why you're doing it, whether you're any good at it or not. You have to be convinced this is what you have to do. And, and finally, the elders and deacons must, and every Christian should have a good reputation outside the church. Bad reputations among church leaders are especially harmful, especially when you get to smaller congregations and smaller towns where everybody knows who you are. You get bad leadership in you and people drive by. I know that guy who's leading that church. I, I, I have to do business with him. He's no good. See how that reputation can affect people coming into the church? Um, neighbors, they'll examine whether or not you're in leadership. My neighbors know what I do. Um, elders and deacons, they need to have a good reputation in the church, a good reputation in their workplace if they work secular, and in their neighborhoods. We need to have a good reputation in our neighborhoods. All Christians should be recognized as behaving excellent. All of us. Um, by all measures. 
All measures. By our generosity, by the way we help people. <laughs> I'll be honest right now. I'm embarrassed about something. I'm going to go to confession now. My yard is awful. Jerry lives by me. Is my yard not awful? I, I, I was overtaken with weeds. It was a repo when we bought it. And I had to kill it off. So we used Roundup. Killed everything off. And then, and then I got... I uh, made real close friends with Art Hensel over there. He used to raise sod. And uh, Art, what do I do? And, and you sow in these sprigs, these roots of St. Augustine. And about every 18 inches then I put in this little root of St. Augustine. And, and the idea is they're going to grow together. They're going to weave together. And it prevents you from the added expense of preparation for sod, leveling, and, uh, and pain for the sod. So I did that and it's starting to come together now. It is starting to come together. But it looked awful. And I was like... I wonder what my neighbors think. Look at this Christian. This place looks horrible. And, and it's embarrassing. But we want to be good neighbors is what, the point I'm trying to make. It's a simple point. But, but we want to be the type that, that the neighborhood appreciates us for everything we do. Our shutters are hanging straight. If the neighbor has a shutter hanging crooked, you can help him. You know, we need to be those type of people. We need to have a good reputation. At work, we work hard. We're in verse 8, we're not known as double-tongued. We talked about that early, earlier. Um, people can't keep their story straight from going one person to another. We're steady, we're consistent, we're not gossipers, Scripture says. So that our message that we have for people will be received. Um, our message is offensive. It is. That we are sinners... We have to be redeemed. That you have to go through Christ in the blood of the cross. That's offensive to universalists. And most people are universalists. Everybody's saved. Everybody's good people. No, you're not. You're not. We're all sinners who have to have a Savior. That's offensive. But our methods don't have to be offensive. Our methods don't have to be. When sharing the gospel, Colossians 4, 5 reminds us, conduct ourselves with, with wisdom toward outsider, towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you know, will know how to respond to each one. This is why, if you remember, the Westboro Baptist Church, the protested military funerals, why that is such an unbiblical approach to Christianity and evangelism. Completely repulsive and unbiblical. Some of the stuff that they said is true. The way they did it was not right. We don't do that. Our gospel is a stumbling block. We don't become the stumbling block. Gerald and I are always praying and discussing how we can more appropriately bridge the gospel to our culture. We look at Paul, how he'd speak to his culture. And, and you know, there were very few newspapers back in that day, if any. Usually it's pinned on a door in the community if you saw something that you read. There weren't any television or radio Paul would engage the culture where they were used to being engaged. We find this in Acts 17. It says that Paul was reasoning with the people in the marketplace. Notice he was reasoning with the people. And in verse 18, it came about that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began conversing with him. Started talking with him. And in verse 19, they brought Paul to the Areopagus. That's what we know of as Mars Hill. And saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming? 
For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean, they told Paul. And in this parenthetical statement that's added by, the, by Luke, it says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. The Areopagus, that was a place where there was an exchanging of ideas. And I asked Pastor Weiler this past week again, for many times, um, where does our culture naturally share ideas? Where does that happen? Where do we exchange that? What's our culture's Areopagus? Social media and internet. We need to do a better job with media. We need to do a better job with communicating God's truth and the gospel using media because people search around and look at what's going on there. They're open to it. And um, we need to do it in a way that's reasonable. We need to demonstrate that we're intelligent, we're loving, we're honest, we're winsome, not insulting. And why do we have to do it in in a way that is winsome? They'll just unfriend you. If they don't unfriend you, they'll unfollow you. I know I haven't followed a whole bunch of people since politics started this year. Still friends, we just unfollow because the soapbox, boom, boom, boom. Over and over again. So people can unfollow you, you don't even know, but you're not reaching them. So we need to be winsome. We need to demonstrate where people have balance. We enjoy things that are we, like golf. We enjoy things like RVing. We enjoy all kinds of things. But we need to be able to weave in the gospel. Because, and we need to do it in a way because the way we word things... Uh, as it's printed, if you bring up anything controversial, even if you're not, if you're trying to be nice, they immediately see scorn on your face. If you're typing something out, because they don't know what the connotation is. Gerald and I have been talking about doing more videos. We've been talking for a while. And how with the videos on Facebook, on our page, on the internet, can show where we are, who we are, and you can also communicate in a way that people can say, you know what, he's not yelling at me. They're reasonable. They're not crazies. So we're going to try and do more and more of that. Hold, us, hold our feet to the fire on that. We've been talking to it, about it for a while. Gerald's like, yeah, you've been talking about this for a while. Um, takes a lot of time to edit through things. How are you going to work? You've got to be brief. Three or four minute clips is all you can get. Or people won't, they see 10 minutes in the bottom thing, they won't watch it. So we're going to work on that, reaching our community from our church, from ourselves. And uh, we need to do a better job of that. I'm asking the men to come forward now. To distribute the Lord's Supper. And uh, this is a ceremony, that communion. We celebrate what we have in common. Common faith, a common Savior, a common profession, common gospel. It's also an opportunity for us to self-examine ourselves, adjust where we need to adjust, um, reflect on our sin, count the cost of what Christ had to pay through His body and through His blood.